This podcast was recorded on October 13th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and is subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, we have a special guest today. Uh, from this one, we're not doing it via video. We're doing it remote. Uh, but we have Ivy Zellman. Welcome, Ivy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. Excellent. Thanks. So, Ivy, you are the CEO and co-founder of Zellman Associates, uh, which you founded uh, right before the financial crisis back in 2007. Um, you have a very, very diverse background in banking and the likes. Maybe you could walk us through um, what, how you started your career, um, what led you to really starting your own for- firm, and how you got so uh, focused on a uh, real estate market here in the U.S. Well, first, I just say uh, it's interesting when you look back on your career, and I feel like an old dog saying this, that it's uh, nearly 30 years ago, but I um, would have never expected to um, be somewhat focused on the housing market. I started my career in investment banking at Solomon Brothers uh, after putting myself through college at night and uh, working full-time as a secretary and and really um, thinking that investment banking was my future. But after working at Solomon Brothers in a two-year financial analyst program, having prior to starting at Solomon, worked as a secretary for what was at that time was Arthur Young, um, which is now Ernst & Young, big accounting firm. And everyone there told me, well, you don't want to, you don't want to be an accountant. You know, you, if you really want to make money, you got to go to Wall Street. So I just thought I was forever going to be a banker. Investment banking was my dream. But after a two-year program, I really hated it. And I didn't um, know that there was an opportunity in other parts of the world of uh, finance, but quickly started looking for a job after the two-year program was over, and there was an opening, because if you remember back in the Treasury scandal, when John Goodfriend um, basically got fired and we were in the midst of a recession, that was when I was in the financial analyst program at Solly. There were a lot of people that thought Solomon Brothers, their lights were going to go out, and there were openings everywhere, and in equity research, there was an opening in um, actually in what was then uh, Bruce Harding's group, he followed the SNLs, Fannie and Freddie, and he picked up the home builders as a favor. And that's how I got into equity research and became a housing uh, associate. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Now, my career took a few turns. I got let go at Solomon Brothers when Solomon was acquired by Smith Barney and went to Credit Suisse. And after working at Credit Suisse for about eight years, um, I started getting an itch that, you know, I needed to do something that could really uh, challenge me, you know, having the feeling that I wanted to do something on my own and and was really at that point planning, uh, which was back in like 2005, to do something on my own and hang my own shingle in the midst of what was the great housing boom and um, took what at that time back in early 2007, a big plunge by, by leaving what was a very safe job and, and a pretty good um, 
compensation level and decided to start my own company, even even though my children at the time were three, five, and seven. So it was a, 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 a turning point in my life, but that's really what led me um, down the road to start Zelman Associates with my partner, Dennis McGill. That's, uh, Hopefully that's not too long-winded story. answer. No, it's great. It's a great story too. It's good to see those risks paid off. So um, let, let's talk about, you know, you're, you're known as a foremost thought leader within that, you know, all facets of the housing spectrum, right? So tell to, let, let's talk a little bit about big picture here. What What's going on in the housing market and how are you thinking about things right now in this post-COVID world? Well, the housing market's really on fire. It's been in a remarkable um you know, turnaround from the initial plunge in activity, both in the new home market and the resale market when the economy was on lockdown. And at that time, you know, our expectation was that we would see uh, declines in order of magnitude of, you know, 25, 30% for the home builders in terms of new contracts and down, you know, something in the order of magnitude of about 8 to 12% for the existing home market. And, you know, even with that type of declining activity, we thought home prices would still rise um, just given how tight inventories are, which are were um, at record lows and have even fallen further and made new record lows. Um, but since that initial forecast back in late March, what we've seen is the consumer, everything is about being safe and, and their wellness and, and being stuck at home. So with rates dropping so much, it really has unlocked a lot of people's ability to find value in a, in a not, not only a bigger and better home, but they're able to sell their home very quickly. So I think the mobility rate in the United States is really turning around after being under secular pressure. Um, so the housing market is center stage. You know, we, we see consumers today that realize that whatever current space they've had, it's really not good enough. They're at home with their kids doing online learning or they're working remotely themselves and they need more space or they want more outdoor space because they're recognizing they'll be more um, um, likely to be at, be at home a lot longer. They also want to have family and guests over. Some people are looking for suites for their parents or their in-laws. They certainly, as they get older, don't want to have the risk of them having to go to nursing homes. So housing is taking center stage, center stage, and with rates falling, it's been a remarkable turnaround, and it's continuing even through September and into October. We just cannot believe the pace of business that we're seeing. Yeah, you mentioned there in, in within their mobility, and one of uh, uh, the portfolio managers here at Double Line told me, or we were doing an event recently, and he said, really, the, the, the key thing about having mobility um, is there's two things that tie us down. One is our children and school, and second is the is our workplace and job. And so you referenced here the financing component creating mobility, but how do you think about this this trend we've seen over the last six months or so in the housing market with people having these desires? Is this a complete change in dichotomy of the desirability, or is this something that's a trend that was starting to take place and has been accelerated in this COVID environment? Um, I have to say that I think it's the latter, that it's a trend that had already um, been underway. 
and that this is now, you know, kind of putting it on steroids and accelerating it. And, and I'll back up with that in mind when you think about um, the United States population growth from 2010 to 2020, you know, we're running at less than 1% per annum in terms of growth. And, and that has resulted in some real winners and losers in terms of um, states that are growing and those that aren't. So if you look at, for example, states like Idaho and Utah, Texas, Nevada, Florida, Arizona growing double digits, you know, 15 to 20% over the decade versus states like, you know, New York and Connecticut and Illinois and Pennsylvania growing at less than 3% over that decade. So we've already been seeing a lot of migration moving to more affordable, more favorable climate states. But now with the sea change from remote work, I think you're only going to see that great shuffle accelerating. And it may be that remote work uh, will allow for those that had been uh, forced to stay close to the city, like New York City, for example, they now can drive further out. And we're seeing that because the tri-state area, just New York as an example, has had more life, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically piped into it in the suburbs than it's had in, in a decade. Um, but with remote work, you've got roughly six to seven percent of households that are that had been remote, and I think single family will continue to only benefit and accelerate the needs for more single family homes with remote work, even if it were to double or triple from here. And and we don't we don't really forecast where remote work is going. But I just hung up the, uh, with a C suite executive at one of the top mortgage originators, and he was at home. And I said, you know, are you planning? Have you told your employees and they're doing, you know, 15, you know, probably billion in origination a month. And he was like, look, we're not, we're no way going to go back to that. Everybody's very productive. And you keep hearing more and more companies that are talking about having flexibility, optionality. So I think the housing market will have longer term benefits from this sea change, but that's the number one more secular view that's really different is employers allowing people to work remote, freeing them up to either go further out from the city or even pick up and, hey, let's leave uh, Illinois altogether and go to Texas or go to Austin or I'm going to move to Florida where it's not only better climate, better, better um, you know, affordability, but the, the taxes are more favorable. Right. Yeah, the, the, trade, the trade you did uh, back in 07, right? Um, leaving the big <laughs> right, exactly. Actually, it was interesting. I left... Um, Cleveland a lot earlier than that. I, I moved to Cleveland, Ohio from New York City in 2000, pregnant with my oldest, who's 20 now. Um, okay. You know, when you marry a Midwesterner, the next thing you know, you're packing up to when your family starts. So I've been, uh, I made a good trade, but it's even longer than that, than 07. Okay, fair yeah, enough. I guess, uh, I guess I made that opposite move when I moved out. I actually would tell you that the good news is that after being here for 20 years, we might even have an NFL football team after yesterday. I don't know if anyone had a chance to watch the Browns game. It's pretty exciting. I'm not watching football right now. I just, uh, it's disgusting. (laughs) The injuries and everything. Uh, All of our fantasy teams are decimated. And it just, uh, I just, (laughs) 2020 asterisk by everything right now. But I wish you luck there uh, with your team. Thank you. You mentioned about the secular trend here too. And you you talked about there was tight inventories even prior to COVID. And that's, that's a trend that's been really in this kind of, last four or five years is that the inventory of, of houses and supply out there has been uh, very, very low levels, right? 
in terms of, uh, of just deliverables. Um, how, how do we address this secular shift? Because um, five years ago, the boom was in you know uh, multifamily type of things. You've been really focused talking about single family here. Um, what do we need to do to get those inventory levels to where it is? Is this a new construction idea? Is it repurposing, rebuilding? Um, how, how do you envision that in this next secular wave? Well, you know, the inventory of the United States really bottomed back in 2011. And when we look at what drove the inventory down, we we certainly had um, investors that were coming into buying housing and taking advantage of really extreme value from all the foreclosures and home price deflation. And so I think that initially the first few years, there was an expectation that, you know, these investors would sell their um, single family homes that they acquired and try to take advantage of the HPA that we had the subsequent years. But I think that there is really pretty good cash on cash returns, both from the mom and pop investors that have purchased homes and are now landlords, as well as the growing institutional capital that have bought bought um, into the single family asset class. So that's one impediment that um, is really different this time in the extent of to the extent that inventories are tight. But the second reason is really the one that I think is more of a headwind and will continue to keep inventory tight, at least relative to where it is today, is the graying of America. You know, the boomers today, which are roughly 75 million, those born between 46 and 64, you know, as as we age as a population, we tend to age in place. And if you think about my cohort, you know, when you're over 50, if you're in a given year, between the age of 50 and 54, 9% of people in that cohort will move in a given year as compared to the 20 to 24-year-olds, which roughly 53% move in a given year. And as you get even in your 60s, people just tend to age in place. So that graying of America has been a headwind to turnover. And then if you add in the third element, which has really been rates continuing to fall, which has actually benefited consumers tremendously, giving them the ability to refi. And if you look at today's homeowners, nearly 80% of homeowners have a rate at or below 5%, 66 below 4.5%, 40% below 4%. So that has really been a headwind as rates are been sort of prior to COVID hovering between four and four and a half. And we saw what happened in 2018 when rates got to 5%, the overall level of turnover really slowed. So just to quantify it for you, if you look at the mobility rate in the United States back between 1998 and 2002, the number of people moving in a given year was roughly 15%. If you fast forward to 2013 to 2018 on average, it fell to roughly 11%. So I think that mobility had been pressured because of these factors between the institutional mom and pop ownership of single family, good cash and cash returns, mortgage rates, you know, keeping people stuck in their homes because they're not transferable and just people aging that has kept inventory. And we look at inventory, Jeff, just as a uh, way to measure it and be able to look at it historically. We take all the single family homes available for sale, including new homes as a percent of households. And when you look at it historically over a 30-year period, sort of a trend line, you'd say, is about 2%. And during the, the great housing bust, inventory's got to call it 3.5% as a percent of households. And today, we're running at about 1.2%. And, and that's one of the reasons why home prices, you know, we even thought in a, in a great recession that we were faced with in March, that home prices could still increase even in the face of, you know, double-digit unemployment, 
But now what we're seeing is that despite unemployment being so high, with so many people now able to work remote and having their kids at home learning online, they have a lot more flexibility and a lot more options. So the states that have been the winners are now exceedingly growing, even even more so than they had been because of this new dynamic. Um, so I, I think the consumers are starting to see that they actually can list and sell their house very quickly. So listings are starting to move inch up a little bit. Um, I still think that we'll be at extremely low levels. The builders really didn't get the memo to build affordable homes until 2000, early 2016, late 15. And part of it was they were afraid that if they built out in the third ring, which we refer to as the exurbs, that consumers wouldn't drive to qualify. And that kept them, you know, more risk adverse and they wanted to build closer in only in the, you know, move up sort of best locations or affordable, but closer in that they could find the land to build. So, you know, when you would talk to builders, you'd say, hey, if you build it, they will come. You guys remember the field of dreams, if you're old enough to remember Kevin Costner and, and hey, listen, if you build it, the realtors were begging for them to build it. So while they're right now, you know, tripping over themselves to build as much affordable homes as they can out in that third ring, and we're seeing the benefits of them pioneering again, there's still about a 20% deficit of what's needed just to get back to sort of normal level of supply for the builder community. And there's natural regulate, regulatory or regulators because of the constraints around municipalities getting land approved, constraint around uh, the labor force and just supply chain impediments. So there's, there's no question that it's improving on the builder side, but on the resale side, I think it's barely nudging. In fact, Existing home inventories since the pandemic shut down declined another 25 plus percent, which is what it, where we came up with the new record low at that 1.2 percent that we're running today. And we had been running kind of one three, uh, one three four prior to the pandemic as a percent of households. Yeah, the the talk about the excerpts has me kind of thinking back to around the 2005-2009 uh, housing boom when. Yeah, people, you know, when, when home builders started to build out communities farther out from the cities, like here in Los Angeles County, you start to get people commuting in from San Bernardino or Riverside County and doing an hour or two commute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to talk about something, see if you could address kind of the flip side of the strength in single family uh, houses with some of the glut that perhaps we're seeing in multi-sector or multi-family uh, housing with perhaps condos that we saw that might have been overbuilt uh, in, let's say, San Francisco or some of the cities like Las Vegas and Miami. Is there some type of what type of impact are we seeing with regards to the uh, Great American Shuffle that you referenced before, uh, as as uh, people are starting to move and look to upgrade into bigger houses or second house purchases and uh, having a need for more space and perhaps less density. Well, you know, I think it's helpful if we back up and just think about 
the demographics, what was happening really since 2001, as you know, you look at the cohorts, let's divide um, cohorts between the 20 to 34 year olds, and then you kind of look at 35 to 44 year olds. So if you look at those two age cohorts, from 2001 to really 2015, the number of 20 to 34 year olds was on a very significant upward trajectory which really benefited more dense urban markets as young people wanted to be in cities, walk to work. You know, they were um, not looking for home ownership, especially during the financial crisis when, you know, they watched their parents get burned. And really the wall of capital that started investing in the multifamily asset class, especially urban class A and suburban class A was just off the charts. And we saw the you know cap rates, you know, compressed to low, the lowest levels that we've seen and, and valuations hitting record highs. And it was almost like not as bad, I used to call it in the great housing boom where the Kool-Aid was flowing, you know, but it, it's certainly a much better uh, cash flowing asset class than let's say single family where you take a lot more risk and sort of blow in the wind. You're buying land for two years out. You have no idea what the economy is going to be. But today, when you look at the the change in the demographic, that 20 to 34-year-old cohort is now decelerating in rate of growth. And by the end or the second half of this decade will actually go negative year over year in the number of people in that 20 to 34 age cohort. And if you now look at the flip side, 34, I'm sorry, the 35 to 44 age cohort actually was under, was under pressure and declining from 2001 to 2000, really 14, 15, and then started growing pretty significantly. So we're going to go from call it 42 million people at the end of 15 to 48 million people that are between 35 to 44. And when you're in that bracket, in that point of your life, when you're likely more likely to be cohabitating, getting married, having children, our data shows that 82% of households that are married with two children between the ages of 30 to 39 live in a single family home. So the multifamily market, even prior to COVID, was already feeling the pressure of the shifts in the demographics as consumers were finally aging into single family and needing more space. You know, I I always joke, it's hard enough to be married. Imagine living in, you know, 900 square feet and adding a few kids. That's a, that's a recipe for divorce and God bless the people that can do it. But when you look at the inventory for multifamily, it's right now in backlog at an all time multi-decade high. That was pre-pandemic. Now we layer on a substantial recession And we look at urban cities that are hit the hardest as people can work remote, and you're seeing that that supply is still there and still going forward. I think it's kind of a bit of a, you know, a a nightmare for those urban uh, multifamily owner operators that are dealing with so many headwinds that were prevalent pre-COVID, and now on top of that, some of the new secular uh, challenges now. In some of the suburban markets, especially Class B, where there wasn't this overbuild of supply, um, they're faring better. Um, they might be looking at rent growth that all in is flat with their new move-ins down, but their renewals up slightly. Maybe some of those residents don't have the ability to buy, um, but we, we do a lot of survey work. We, we survey about a million and a half uh, multifamily units. We also do single family uh, rental. And, and what you hear about is a lot of people that are moving out to buy is actually down quite a bit. 
but what's up the most is their reason for leaving, is they're leaving to move in with family, with their parents, in many cases in those urban dwellings, or they're moving into single family rental because they either can't afford to buy, they don't have the credit, or they don't have the down payment. But it, it's a very challenged market. I, I, I tell you, it's a great business, great longer term asset class and great annuity stream, but that pipeline coming is going to keep pressuring lease rates and, and collection rates as the economy continues to heal have been under pressure. You mentioned the, the single family rental market, and that's something I'd like to touch on because um, we, we heard about this program, you know, kind of in like, what was it, 2011 or so? Um, where there's going to be all these investors stepping in and some of the big shops put together funds to do this. And essentially, they're going to gobble up a bunch of real estate they thought were depressed prices, rent them out for a couple of years, and then flip them out at a profit. And so you have the, the annuity stream you're talking about, but you also have an exit strategy. And then you, know, you, you forward the clock uh, a few years forward and you find that Okay, well, that that strategy wasn't exactly one that was really scalable and, and, and the ability to do that. We've seen a resurgence of this, though, back an interest from the investment community now, where people are looking to do this more as a long term type of trade. So essentially what you just laid out, institutional type of investors that want to put together significant amounts of capital, but want to do it with the, with the idea of actually just owning property and running that out. Um, are you seeing more interest in that? We've seen some securitizations come off of that lately. Um, how, how do you think of the development of that market? Is that helpful for as we see some of this, I hate to call it ur uh, urban flight, uh, but you know that, that's kind of some of the dynamics you're seeing on these larger cities, especially the expensive ones. And so how do you think about that? Is, that? is that helping bring inventory to the markets by helping affordable housing? Or what, what do you think about the dynamics of that market? Well, given the benefits that single family for sale has, there's just no inventory. So when you look at occupancy of single family rental, it's now at an all-time record level. It's like 98% occupied, and they're actually able to push rents pretty aggressively. They were trying to be socially responsible. Those that are um, in the largest portfolios, you know, Imitation Homes, American Home for Rent, that are both both publicly traded, you know, they at first were being socially responsible and not really pushing rents. But today we're seeing a reacceleration in both renewals and aggressively going after new move-ins. So given the tightness of the stock, and especially those that have taken advantage of the strength of the more recent um, you know, recent strength in home price appreciation, you see mom and pop landlords that have, have sold, and now that's made the rental stock even tighter. So I think that those um, investors that are, you know, basically already in a portfolio or have a portfolio of assets, they're very um, well positioned to get a good cash on cash return, lever up to low double digits. It's a nice way to diversify, but it has the same positive backdrop that the for sale market has from the demographic um, tailwind as people are aging into that need for more space, you know, ability again for those to uh, be further out so where they can work remote and, and have affordability relative to rent they would have paid in the cities. And I think that, you know, the inventories being so tight will continue to keep uh, the overall occupancy and rent growth accelerating. So we're bullish on single family rental. The hottest new space, though, is built for rent. 
and I, I'm not sure how much um, your listeners are aware of this, but Built for Rent has been, you know, if you look at the Census Bureau, the data suggests that about four plus percent of homes that are um, built purposely to rent out um, has been you know, pretty much at these levels for quite a bit of time, that market is just like taking off like a rocket ship. And uh, there's a wall of capital chasing that asset class, both from the home builders and developers and the single family rental operators. And they're trying to partner with each other or start their own development arms if they're not a developer now, as there is a desire by consumers for, you know, brand new homes that have technological capabilities that offer open floor pans. People don't want the old stock. And if they can't afford the down payment or they don't have the right FICO scores or they just want flexibility so they don't have to own, I think the bill for rent market can really be very um, successful as long as we don't overbuild the market, you know, if we, you know, you can't really measure it right now. And I'd say we're a long way from overbuilding it, but it's not, uh, you know, we're, we're probably getting at least a few dozen calls a week about it for people that are looking to invest in the space. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, I think some people are just, you know, it, it, it's the classic, you know, naive extrapolation. You take what's happened over the, the most recent term and you just say that's going to continue forever. And so I, I think you're right. You bring up the risk of overbuilding. It just reminds me, it's the opposite of the spectrum where we we're just talking about multifamily, right? Um, back, you know, mm-hmm. in the post-financial crisis, there was a flood of capital. It created the supply. There was lots of demand as there's urbanization. Then that trend changed. So um, being a fixed asset, you know, it, it, you got to get these secular kind of trends correct, or at least in the direction of. So on that note, um, we've talked a lot of positive attributes. Most people I speak to about the single family and multifamily world um, are still extremely bullish on the area. Let, let's talk about some of the risks. So what are some of the risks that you see uh, to some of these forecasts that people are making um, and, and we're looking at the market? What are some of the bigger risks to the overall housing market? Uh, you laid out U.S. interest rates at the beginning. You're talking about that 5% uh, mortgage seemed to, to really put the brakes on things uh, previously. Is there anything else you're thinking about besides rates? Uh, we're a long way from 5%, by the way. As you're well aware, mm-hmm. in terms of mortgage rates, uh, they they still got room to come in if if the if the originators can clear out all the loans. Uh, so, w- what do you see as some of those risks out there today? Well, I think first I would just say that you're right, absolutely long way from five percent, and and not um, being someone who we don't forecast interest rates. But even if rates were on the long end of the curve, if we saw, you know, the ten year, which is moving higher, it continued to move up. I think mortgage lenders right now have record levels of profitability that they would give up some of that margin in order to sustain volumes, especially when they're adding to headcount aggressively right now to basically try to take on more capacity. Um, or take on more business by bringing on more capacity. So they'd probably give up margin and the consumer wouldn't feel that the stocks would, the stock market would hurt from a 10 year backing up. Um, You know, I think under a new administration, you know, if we do get a democratic sweep, I think we're going to see higher taxes. And I think that could impact, you know, consumers' willingness from a discretionary spending perspective to be as aggressive on mobility, especially like, the, the loser states today, I hate to say it that way, I'm a uh, proud and uh, uh, born and raised New Yorker, but, you know, areas that are much more um, costly could really be the biggest losers as taxes increase. So I think you'll see um, 
more people decide to pick up and leave some of these markets that they've already been under pressure, but that would only accelerate. You know, the foreclosures, um, I hear a lot of risk that foreclosures are going to, um, you know, reduce uh, pricing power or we're going to see another housing bust. You know, when we look at the number of homeowners that are 90 day plus delinquent, or you want to say number of homeowners that are in forbearance. And you think about, you know, the likelihood that we're going to see something similar to what we saw in the great housing bust. I don't think it's possible personally, um, just because inventories are so tight that even if we were to say that, you know, every, every homeowner that's in forbearance that has an FHA mortgage today, assuming every one of them all were foreclosed at once, um, you wouldn't even get back to that 2% 2% trend line um, that I mentioned earlier. But that, as we both know, that doesn't happen. Foreclosures are drawn out. And talking with mortgage servicers, they don't want to go to foreclosure because the difference between this housing bust or this you know, potential risk for a housing bus is there's, there's equity. You know, there's only 2% negative equity. 34% of today's homeowners don't even have a mortgage and about 63% have positive equity. So when we look at you know, the risk for foreclosures, we don't see it as um, problematic as if anything, it could, you know, create more inventory. And today, the velocity in the housing market is at the highest levels it's been. And when I say velocity, the home, when a home is listed, that it sells within the same month. And that's the way we measure it is at an all-time record right now. So while the numbers are, you know, certainly not as strong as they could be if we had more inventory, the market is very, very healthy. So more inventory would only potentially um, increase the transactions and and give people more choices. But that that is a risk because you don't want to see struggling homeowners having to sell. Uh, there's new programs out there that are taking um, a little bit uh, or creating some uh, capital that would like to pursue this as a strategy, sale lease back that you traditionally see in commercial real estate. We're hearing, you know, programs for cash poor borrowers that are, you know, house rich because there's so much equity uh, that they could, you know, sell and stay or stay, yeah, stay and sell. Um, but I just don't see, honestly, Jeff, the, the challenges of, of the housing market anywhere near what we saw in the great housing bust. And the mortgage market is a lot to do. The guardrails that were created by Dodd-Frank and QM and, you know, FHA borrowers are another story because many of them came in with very low FICOs, very little equity, high-end back-end ratios. So those borrowers that, you know, can't find a job or can't come up with payment are going to likely sell, but that's the positive if you need more inventory, you know? So I think there's some good and bad, but I just think the housing market's going to be a winner. Now, lastly, I would be worried about, as I mentioned, rates, if rates were to go up. But I also think that, you know, we just hosted our big housing summit, which we do um, in person, usually in Boston, and we held it virtually. If your listeners want to register and go watch it, we can give them for your show a discount. But I would just tell you that I was really amazed um, as the moderator for all of our panels. So we did a builder panel, broker panel, uh, rental panel, um, probably building products panel. Most of the executives, uh, the C-suite executives that we interact with, both public and private, in the single-family asset class are really complacent right now. I, I mean, and, and I say that respectfully, but it just, 
they're, they don't think anything go wrong. And well, we're saying that we think 22 is going to be a down year over year. We're going to see declines in existing home sales. We're going to see declines in new home sales and housing starts. They're, they think we're nuts. So they're like, we think we can keep growing for the next several years. And, you know, we think Ivy's forecast is way too bearish. And so I feel like there's some complacency setting in. I've chatted with some builders. So we survey about 15 to 20% of the new home markets. We have several hundred private builders of, you know, pretty good size, small to mid. And they're seeing land deals that just don't pencil. And you guys remember, right? That That's one of the signs when we called the top of the market and we were called jihad by many and that, you know, Zelman is, you know, permabear. We would talk to private developers and builders that would say, "This, th- what you're seeing out there just doesn't make any sense. And that's just now starting to um, show its ugly head again, that there's some you know, bad actors out there that are so worried that they're not going to get the volume that they're willing to pay up for land that just doesn't pencil. So those are things that we'll be watching, and we do a land development survey. I just feel like the markets, it's not... 2013, if you guys remember, and and I know that Jeff Gunlock was you know negative back then because I would believe it or not, Jeff was uh, we we talked about Jeff at our dinner table because my kids would be you know every day I'd be coming home and and the market was really ugly in 13, and um, what I would just say is that at that point rates went up 100 basis points as we know when Bernanke was like you know. Uh, you know, the Fed was go, you know, and may go away or whatever it was. And, and the housing market was so egregious, the builders, they were raising prices, they had no regard for affordability. And the housing market came to a, a screeching halt. And builders are raising prices so aggressively right now again. And they're doing so because they have to cover the inflation and they're building material costs. So lumber, as we all know, is soared. But there's building material costs across every product category. So how much affordability, you know, if you think about mortgage rates, for every 25 basis point increase in the 10-year yield, that has historically, if assuming it's a directly um, correlated to 30-year fixed rate, it would be about a 3% increase in the monthly payment for an FHA borrower. So what people don't realize, the home builders are pushing price. And right now we're looking at annualized pricing in the new home market in the entry level that's running at an annualized double-digit rate. So that scares me. Oh, I know what I was about to say. And back in 13, one of my private builders I was talking with in California says, you know, I feel like we're, we're driving around a dangerous curve at 150 miles an hour. And it's just, you know, we're going to crash. It's going to crash. And I think the builders right now are aggressively raising prices. They're buying land more aggressively. And it just feels like something could go wrong. But the whole contingency is rates, in my opinion. Rates stay low. We'll probably start to see some relative slowing in 21 or 22, but the builders might push too far in price and that could slow things even faster. So anyway, I'm blabbing, but I'll stop there. No, um, it's it's very informative blabbing, by the way. Um, I, it's good to hear your <laughs> thought you. process too. No, because you know, uh, I think that's the toughest thing to assess right now. So um, when you're looking across uh, the sector, and obviously the the people who use a lot of your services are trying to deploy capital, um, what parts of the market do you think are are good investments at today's levels, and what are the things you guys are, are advising to stay clear of today? Well, we really are more, um, as a firm, we're focused on the 
you know, benefits of the next decade, um, the backdrop for single family. And we do see that that asset class should be um, really a good investment opportunity. But I think that it's very much dependent on what type of strategy you may have and where you're building. So it's not just a universe, everything's great. I mean, it's very market specific, but we like the single family asset class. We think the multifamily asset class is a good longer term asset class, but we are not advising to be putting new capital to work in that market. And I think that because the overall home improvement market is strong, there are opportunities in renovation, fix and flip. You know, you do have the iBuyer market right now. There's a lot of innovation happening in housing and different ways to really provide a more frictionless consumer experience. And I think there's lots of various opportunities that um, we're seeing capital being deployed to try to help the consumer have a more high quality experience, whether again, it be the iBuyer market, which is probably the most, the one that most people are familiar with, but just the fix and flip. One thing about the United States, the United States is today has, you know, a housing stock that is in desperate need of repair. You know, it's nearly 45 years old. You know, if you divide the country using, you know, west of the Mississippi versus east of Mississippi, it's much older uh, east of the Mississippi. And because of the great housing bust and the loss of equity, people just didn't put money back in their homes. So today, when you go into, you know, look at, at some of these homes that are, you know, 20, 30 years old, it, they are in desperate need of repair, but consumers can't afford to do that. But there's ways to invest to capitalize on, you know, getting that stock renovated, just like you see renovation in commercial real estate. We need renovation in the, I think that's a good opportunity, but it's not as easily scaled. And there are, you know, some companies that are doing so successfully. But so I think there's lots of areas, but you really have to understand the local market dynamics. And there's plenty of dumb tax and plenty of bad investments being made because they're just assuming that everything is sort of universal in the benefits to the market um, or will have the benefits to the overall market. And that's just not the case. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense, too, as you think about just kind of the setup here. So. Um, Ivy, it's been great uh, just talking to you. you know, I mean, you're just a great expert in the space. I think it's very helpful uh, for people to be able to have access to you. So um, how, do, how do people follow your work? How do they get access to your research? You mentioned, uh, for instance, a discount for listeners uh, to that conference. How, how can they get in touch with you, Ivy? Um, sure. So just um, go to our website, um, zelmanassociates.com, and you'll see the housing summit uh, drop down and you can register. And we give uh, for, again, our friends and family, it's uh, 550 per person. And then you can also get group discounts or you can just email Kim at zelmanassociates.com and she can help set you up. So that's for our housing summit. Again, we had, um, you know, Probably it was spread out amongst three days, but really great content, really important outlook on the next several years of what to expect in all areas of housing. But as a firm, you know, we're an independent equity research boutique. So we service institutional investors that are buying and, and selling stocks. We also have uh, private equity, fixed income, and corporate clients that can really benefit from our proprietary research with relationships from 
all of the housing ecosystem companies that are participating in any various area or in all different areas that nearly a thousand companies at the C-suite level are um, really partnering with Zellman, providing us insights that we are aggregating on a monthly and quarterly basis. And we do a tremendous amount of forecasting. So if you're interested in our research, we do sell it a la carte on the website. And or you can buy subscriptions uh, for um, various uh, reports, or you can buy full boat and um, you know negotiate with salespeople. So, you know, there's not a lot of firms that have the ability to take all the various silos with within the housing mosaic and triangulate all aspects of it. We have a lot of people that are writing on multifamily or just writing on single family or not writing on mortgage. We do real estate services. We do mortgage. We do all assets class and resi. So I think we have the ability to bring all of our expertise together to give you very insightful value add perspective. And, um, I hope your listeners uh, will come and check us out. Yeah, so um, as, as she said there to zelmanassociates.com, uh, you can go on there and check it all out. I saw her latest chart book. It's, it's killer, especially for folks like us who, uh, who do a lot of research in this space, a lot of content that uh, we look at as well. So thanks again for your time, Ivy. I really appreciate it. I think our, our listeners got a good insight into the work you guys are doing. However, before you leave, there's one part of the show that Sam Lau really enjoys. It's his favorite part, and he'd like to introduce you to that. So, Sam? All right, Jeff. And that favorite part of the show is Chairman Says. Uh, Ivy, what I'll do is I'll offer a series of alternating prompts starting with uh, Mr. Sherman first and then uh, alternating between the two of you. So the first one, the Sherman is forbearance, mortgage forbearance. Let's put that in. Flatlining. Over to UIV with micro housing. Workouts. Oh, I'm sorry. I was supposed to do forbearance. Oh, sorry. What's the next one? All right. So uh, micro housing for you. Micro housing, affordability. Lumber prices to Sherman. Volatile. And this is a blast back to you, Ivy, with housing affordability. Rates. Vacancies. Are we going vacancies? Are we going resi? Are we going commercial? Up to you, man. Yeah. Uh, mixed. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> uh, this one's to you, Ivy. Millennial home ownership. Higher. Back to Sherman with short-term home rentals. Hate them. As, a, as an <laughs> asset owner, I hate them in my neighborhood. I'm a NIMBY guy, you know. Uh, <laughs> short-term renting around me, right? Um, so anyway. Yeah, you fit that NIMBY uh, cohort. You know? Yep. So let's see. Back to you, Ivy, with key housing demographic trends or trend, let's put that singular. More space. Mm. And the last one for each of you, a different one for each of you, is going to be workforce mobility to Sherman. Empowered. Nice. And for UIV, to close it off with workforce housing. We need more. All right. And that All wraps right. it up for Sherman Says. All right, Ivy, that was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, for those of you out there, you can also 
uh, catch uh, uh, these these podcasts. You can catch them on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and the likes. Uh, you can follow us on the Twitter. Our handle is at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, send us some love. Send us some hate. Just let us know you're out there. Also, <laughs> for those of you that didn't uh, watch the last video on our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash double line capital, um, you should go check that out. Look at Sam's hairdo. And I'd like to get some feedback on whether or not he should keep it or not. He's he's considering cutting it. <laughs> I'm trying to make a movement for him to grow it out. It, it's looking pretty compelling case there. So, uh, Ivy, I encourage you to check it out, too. Thank you again for spending the time. Again, uh, Ivy Zellman, she's the CEO and co-founder of Zellman Associates, expert in the housing market, uh, many, many accolades out there. So I think you'd be really doing yourself a favor if you want to know more about the real estate market uh, to reach out to her colleagues. Again, Ivy, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 Double-Line Capital.